Today's scripture reading can be found in Matthew chapter 6, verses 24 through 34. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither soar nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to spare his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day in its own trouble. Hello, my name is Albert, and I'm not teaching this morning. I asked Jeff Malott to teach on my behalf, because yesterday I officiated my father-in-law's memorial service and didn't know if I needed to be available for my family or not. And also this evening, I'm part of another fundraiser for a partner organization that Regen partners with, and I'm going to be participating in that this evening. So I won't be in the evening service. So I looked for someone within our body to teach, and Jeff Malott, who's getting married in a couple weeks, right? is a recent graduate of Golden Gate Seminary. He is one of the leaders of our refugee outreach and ministry, along with Doug, who's right in the middle with a yellow hat in there. You can talk to either one of them about how they've been helping us to reach out to the refugees in our community, which is one of the reasons why I believe that regeneration is particularly in this neighborhood because of the number of refugees we have in our neighborhood and community. And so it's, it's pretty obvious to us that we need to reach out to them, the sojourner, the, the alien that the Bible so uh, frequently speaks about. And so Doug and Jeff have been really instrumental in starting our ESL class on Fridays, and they've been doing that faithfully for over a year, and also reaching out to the refugees in our community and, and just getting in their lives and in their kitchens and dining rooms and, and on the soccer field and things like that. So uh, really looking forward to hearing from Jeff and what the Lord's put on his heart. Good morning. So first off, I want to say thank you to Pastor Albert for sharing his pulpit with me this morning. Because as he mentioned, I'm getting married in two weeks. Praise God. There's <laughs> and yeah, at first when he mentioned that and, and, and asked me to preach, if I'd be willing to preach, I looked at my calendar and I was like, two weeks before the wedding. I was like, uh-uh. No way. There's no, I was like, wedding stress, everything's coming down last minute. There's no way. But then I was like, this is Pastor Albert. You, just, you can't just tell Pastor Albert no. He, he, he might think you're unspiritual. And so, you know, I felt that little nudge from the Holy Spirit saying, okay, well, tell him you'll pray about it. And I was like, okay, all right. You know, so I did. And here I am. I also wanted to thank you because 
as uh, some of you may realize this morning, I don't preach that often. And when God calls me to preach, there's like this, this period of holiness that surrounds the couple weeks leading up to the sermon. And for those of you who are married, you know that being engaged is a difficult time to try and practice holiness in your life. So, Pastor, if nothing else I say today comes together and makes any sense, I want you to know God is at work. <laughs> all right, let's pray. Father God, you are good in all your ways. I thank you, Lord, for this church, for the ways in which your kingdom has already advanced in and through this church and through this church body. Lord, I just ask that you would use this sermon, my words, today to help further your kingdom in this church, in our minds and hearts, and in this neighborhood. Lord, may your kingdom come and your will be done in Oakland as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so the passage this morning comes from Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. And this was a passage that was preached to me when I was in undergrad. I was doing my undergrad at Michigan State University, Go Green. It was a four-part sermon series by a guy named Dave Schwartz. And the message that he gave to us that weekend was so profound that it stuck with me and changed the course of my life and probably had a good part in leading me to seminary and to where I am today. So when I started praying about, you know, okay, Lord, where do you, where do you want me to preach from today? Because uh, Pastor Albert said, okay, you don't have to stick to Luke. And I was like, okay, good. <laughs> Get a breath of fresh air. Um, you know, I got this that nudge from the Holy Spirit saying, hey, why don't you go back to Matthew 6:33? It's been 10 years. Let's let's check back and see how you're doing. So I want to dig in and see what it says. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. This is a mighty promise. This is an awesome promise. When he says all these things, you heard Ben come up and read the scripture before that. It's clothes, food, it's your basic necessities. It's the things that we tend to worry about. In the verse preceding, he says the pagans run after these things. Back in Jesus' day, whenever he says the pagans do something, especially in the book of Matthew, the book of Matthew was written to Jewish believers. And so in the Jewish mindset in the first century, if you reference the pagans, that was what it looked like to live as though there wasn't a God, as if God wasn't part of your reality. And so he says, this is basically your default. If God is not in your life, what you're going to worry about, what you're going to run after, looks like food, clothing, what you're going to wear, what kind of car you're going to drive, all that sort of thing. And so he says, he gives you this promise and says, if you want to live as though God is a reality in your life, listen up. Seek first God's kingdom. and Seek first his righteousness. And the rest, God's got it. All right, so what does that look like? Seek first his kingdom. This passage in the book of Matthew 6.33 is the first time that that phrase is mentioned. The kingdom of God. Basileia Hadeus. The next time it's mentioned is in Matthew chapter 12. 
And it's when the Pharisees start accusing Jesus of casting out demons by the name of Beelzebul. And Jesus says, don't you understand? A kingdom that's divided against itself can't stand. He said, if Satan cast out Satan, then his kingdom will fall. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God, Basileia Hatheus, is among you. He mentions something similar in chapter 11 when John the Baptist sends his disciples to him. John's in prison at that time, and he sees all these things that Jesus is doing, but he's, he, he's wondering, like, is Jesus really the one that was to come, the promised Messiah? And so he sends his disciples to ask, you know, Lord, are you the one to come, or should we expect someone else? You see, John the Baptist was expecting the Messiah to basically come down take over Israel, kick out the Romans, and basically announce a kingdom of peace and prosperity that will last forever. That's what they were looking for in the kingdom of God. And so he sends his disciples, hey, are you the one? Uh, I don't see the Romans leaving anytime soon. And Jesus' response to him goes like this. He says, go back and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. He says, look at the Old Testament. Look at the prophecies that are being fulfilled. That quote is right out of the book of Isaiah. He's saying, If you want to understand, if the kingdom of God is here, look at the poor. The poor are being preached to. The blind can see. The hungry are being fed. The dead are being raised. The deaf can hear. All of these things. The world around me, John, is starting to look a little more like God intended. Demons are being cast out, Pharisees. Who do your disciples cast out demons by? So he's saying basically, anywhere you see the Holy Spirit at work, making the world around you look a little bit more like God intended it to be, that's the kingdom of God. There's twofold definition to the kingdom of God. One is that it's a domain. It's the actual kingdom up in heaven someday when I die. Hope to go there. And there's also the reign. It's wherever God has authority. And that's what he's talking about here. Seek first his kingdom. Seek first for God's authority to reign over your life. And if it does, the world around you will start looking more like God intended it to be. Abraham Kuyper A wise old theologian once said, There is no field of endeavor in human history, life, or culture about which Jesus Christ does not say, This is mine. There is no field of endeavor in which, in human history, life, or culture about which Jesus Christ does not say, This is mine. And this is good news for some of you in the audience at Regen. Because some of you have degrees in areas that lead you to places 
where the kingdom of God has yet to penetrate. There's almost nothing that you can't do for the kingdom of God. If you want to go and be a you know, Colombian drug cartel for Jesus, that might be a little bit difficult. <laughs> but as it stands, he says, press the life and power of Jesus into your place of work, your family, wherever you are. Make it look a little bit more like heaven. That's what he means by seeking first his kingdom. The postmodern world that we live in has relegated the kingdom of God to church buildings on Sunday mornings. There's a time and place for that. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever heard anyone say, talk about Jesus too much in the, in the break room? Or, you know, definitely not at school. We don't want any prayer in school. There's a time and place for that. So in the postmodern mindset, this is it. But for the follower of Jesus, that's unthinkable. How awful to think one hour on Sunday is all God gets. And then, you know, when you go back to your job as, as nurses, doctors, engineers, wherever God has you go. Some of you know Math. He comes to the evening service. He's a, a middle school teacher. He's getting his master's degree in abstract mathematics. That blows my mind. I have no clue what it would look like to bring Jesus and the kingdom of God into the world of abstract mathematics. I took one course of mathematics in college called The Significance of Mathematics because it was, <laughs> it, it was, it was a prereq. I, just had, I had to get it out of the way. And I was just like, yeah, I've always wondered. I was like, what is that there for? Like, why do we have to learn that? <laughs> I don't get it. You know, like I can add my paycheck up and see if the hours are right. That's, that's about all I need. But, and all they taught me actually was how to gamble. <laughs> Probability and uh, statistics. Math will be here tonight. I'm going to ask him. I was like, what does that look like to you know, bring the Lord Jesus into that realm? You know, like grab the dice. All right, lucky number seven. Come on, baby, dad needs a new pair of shoes. I don't know. But Jesus wants a part of it. Whatever it looks like, Jesus wants to be there in that realm. There's another example that I wanted to give, too, of what it looks like for uh, the kingdom of God to advance in a neighborhood, specifically. Last week, Albert preached about how there's really no one you can overlook. If your heart and mind is focused on the kingdom of God, his scope includes everybody. Anybody that bears his image, he looks at them and says, I want them. He gets excited about them. He says, yeah, they're made to represent me. I want them. I want them in my kingdom. And I was convicted by that last week because I work in the city. I work for a company that sells boxes. Every day when I get off the BART or on my way to the BART in Oakland, I pass by probably maybe three or four people with their hats out, you know, heads down or jingling a cup or saying, hey, you got a dollar. And at first when I came to Oakland, I was just like, okay, you know, Jesus says, give to everyone who asks. And so I'd, I'd start and I'd give a dollar or whatever. You know, at the, end, at the end of the day, I'd be giving like five bucks out and I'd be like, I'm going broke. <laughs> I, don't, I just don't have enough money to sustain this. You know, like, forgive me, Lord Jesus, but I'm going to walk past this guy. You know, and eventually over time, that built up into like resentment in my heart towards the people who were asking me. So that I just I'd sort of bury my head, walk past, and be like, no, sorry, you know, can't help you. Some of you know uh, Matthew Huang. 
I met up with him one morning. He works at the Vietnamese Community Center down on International and volunteers his time there, I think, a couple times a week. And I was meeting up with him for coffee one morning, and he's like, hey, there's a good banh mi place right across the street. You want to go grab some lunch? And I was like, yeah, that'd be great. And we, we walk in, and there's this lady sitting right outside the restaurant because the restaurant owners kicked her out. They won't let her in. And, and I'm thinking, you know, okay, just put your head down, go in, let's have a coffee. And she's like, you got a dollar? I'm like, you know, I'm about to say no, ma'am. And, and Matthew's like, hey, Cece, hey, how's it going? And I was like, wait, she's got a name? <laughs> you know, it, it blew my mind because I, I totally wasn't thinking. I had, I had learned and taught myself to overlook people who God wanted in his kingdom. And the fact that to Matt, she has a name, he knew her, she came in, he bought her a sandwich. It's like the kingdom of God expanded past my thinking and reached out to Cece. Kind of cool. One of the reasons why I started coming to Regen, Pastor Albert gives me a lot of credit. I've become sort of like, I feel like the poster child for refugee ministry, which is nice. I get all the praise, but that's, <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot that led up to it. I'll tell you more about that later. During the last year of my seminary studies, instead of doing a thesis, they make you do what they call a TFE, Theological Field Education. And instead of a thesis and having to write a 120-page paper, they let you go out and try and practice what you've learned and expand the kingdom of God. So we're you know, my roommate Doug had worked with refugees before. He's like, hey, I know there's some refugees in the East Bay. Let's go see what we can do. And we started walking around and praying. And we went to the International Rescue Committee and said, hey, what is your greatest needs? What do you need us to plug in? They said, Oakland just shut down all of their adult education classes. We have nowhere to send the refugees to learn English. And if they don't learn English, they can't get jobs. And we said, you know, well, hey, we, we've taught English. We've gone overseas, taught ESL before. You know, if we were able to maybe like find a church or something that would lend us their building and start up a class, and it's like before we even answered, they were like, we would send you every refugee that comes through our door. So we started praying about it, and we're just like, yeah, that sounds like a good opportunity. And uh, through two different people, they kind of said, hey, you might want to check out Regeneration. There's a pastor in the East Bay who's got a pretty cool church, and you might go and see if, if he'd lend you this space. And so we, we prayer walked around Regen. We set up a meeting with Pastor Albert, had our friends introduce us. And it was like that Thursday we met and we gave him the whole spiel. And it's just like, this is what we want, you know, we think God is doing. And we want him to rent a room or whatever, you know, for, for the, the refugees. And he's like, you know what, that's great. But you don't have to give me the spiel. God already spoke to me and put refugees on my heart this week and said, I want you to seek areas of opportunity for this. And then for the next year, he let us use the chapel rent-free. None of us were even going here. We were living in the North Bay, and he's just let us use his space. There's probably not another church in Oakland that would do that. Maybe a couple. But that's, that's having a kingdom mindset. Pastor Albert was able to say, yeah. Refugees learning English. God is about that. That makes them feel a little more welcome, a little more at home. That is kingdom mindset. I want the kingdom to happen like that in Oakland. Let's get it started.
And it wasn't until he actually, like, let us use the place for a year that he was just like, uh, you know, I'd kind of like this to take root in my church <laughs> a little. <laughs> Would you mind maybe coming on Sundays and <laughs> seeing what the Lord says to you? And so that was, I guess, the start of the Refugee Bible Study. And the guys who came to that study are rocking my world now. They're already plugging in, teaching English to a few refugees in their homes. And I'm just like, those seeds that were planted like took root and they're starting to sprout. I get excited about it. I'm like, yeah! Like, the kingdom is, ex- I, get, I see it. It's growing. It's growing in people's hearts. The fact that Ali was able to announce that my friend Riyadh is going to make falafels for the church and start interacting with other church folks. I'm like, yes! Like, get him working. He needs it. <laughs> you know, And he's a good cook. You should go and buy some if you never tried falafel. That gives you an example, I guess, of what it looks like in the area of the church to have a kingdom mindset, to seek first his kingdom. I mentioned before that, you know, I've kind of had the privilege of of being the poster child for the refugee ministry, but there have been several others who've been working behind the scenes with me to keep the ESL class running, to promote it elsewhere, to start up events and whatnot. And I wanted to share two stories with you from my life. Uh, one in which I felt like I was not doing so hot in the area of seeking first his kingdom. And then the other one where I think I may have got it right. The first story is about the refugee ministry. I've got to make a few announcements, do scripture readings, lead a class in region. But I think if I was honest with myself, I'd say the mastermind behind the whole ESL class is probably my roomie. You know, he had volunteered before and he's like, let's go and see what the Lord has for us over there. And he was the one who sort of nudged us and said, hey, let's move to Oakland. And the way in which we came to Oakland and continued our relationship as roommates differed so much that I thought it was worth highlighting. When I came to Oakland, the first thing I was thinking, I was just like, there's no subsidized rent in Oakland. I'm going to have to commute to the North Bay to continue my job. Rent is like five seventy five, six hundred bucks a month if you include utilities. I'm just like, I don't see how this is gonna work. There's you know, nothing that's gonna fall in place. He's like, All right, just calm down. Let's give it a try. Let's commit to six months. Six months. If you go broke, who cares? You'll go further in debt six months and you're out of it. I was like, Okay, I can do six months. And so Doug sort of dragged me kicking and screaming into Oakland <laughs> and and um and it took me gradually, you know, to figure out my schedule, figure out my wages, get all of those things in place first before I finally whittled it down. And I was like, yeah, okay, Fridays. I can teach English on Fridays. And I can play soccer afterwards. And I'll work the morning shift at the container store. And eventually, when I did my budget, when I figured out what time and what I could afford to do, some weeks that was all I could give it was one day a week to refugee ministry. And I'm like, this is the reason why I came to Oakland. You know, I had to stop and take a step back and be like, this is the, the whole reason behind this whole struggle of being able to afford rent and, and commute and pass by the, the beggars on the street. This is it. And I give one day a week. I'm like, something's not right. When Doug came, to his credit, he had a, the complete opposite mindset. His was more, 
This is what God's called me to. I'm going to seek to bless the refugee community first. If I get a job, it's going to have to be a job that allows me time to work with refugees. And maybe a job that allows me to employ some refugees and get them job experience. If I have free time, I'm going to spend it with refugees. And all of a sudden, he would start doing things like putting up a website where the refugees could go and look at places that were hiring and fill out applications, you know, or communicate with them about, hey, what's, what's the newest job or where, where, do, where should I be looking right now? You know, and eventually, one of the ladies from the International Rescue Committee said, hey, you know, I've heard a lot of good stuff about your English class. Would you mind if I come take a look? And then she came and take a look and then one of the refugees after the class came up to Doug and was just like, okay, will you help me get a job? And, and he goes on the computer, goes to the website, starts pulling up all the applications. Where do you think you'd like to work? Let's check out this website. What are your skills? And the lady looks at it and she's like, you need to be working here with me. You're seeking first the kingdom. He made God's priorities priority and said, everything else, God's got it. He'll fill in the blank. Meanwhile, I'm still selling boxes, and Doug works at the IRC. <laughs> so I praise God for that. I'm not jealous. The second story that I want to share is more about the kingdom of God in the area of romance. Pastor Albert's looking at me like, oh, what's he going to say? <laughs> Would you cue the slide of the, the portrait? This is what I look like when I came to seminary. No matter what you have to say, there is one thing that is for certain. I did not come to seminary to pick up women. (laughs) And that was precisely why I grew out the beard. I figured that either the woman would have to be just extremely desperate, and, and that would put me off so much that I wouldn't pay attention to her, Or she just really loves Jesus in a very awkward way. (laughs) You know, and then maybe that would be okay. I don't know. Um, But that was, (laughs) that was my seminary beard. And they called me Jesus Jeff for a while (laughs) at seminary. The reason why I had that beard was because I had messed up so many times in the area of romance and seeking my own kingdom that I was just like, Lord, I don't know how to do this. I, I don't know. I don't know what this looks like. I'm just going to grow my beard. I'm going I'm to get as ugly as I can possibly get <laughs> and go to seminary and just focus on your word, focus on your kingdom as much as I can. If you want to bless me with a relationship, go ahead. You know. Um, and so, hence the, the Jesus beard. But uh, about eight years Prior to that, the Lord had given me a verse. I grew up in Switzerland, and my family wasn't Christian when I was growing up. They're still not Christian yet. So I didn't come to the Lord till I was 13. And I was one of those youths who you kind of worry about, because right when I came to the Lord and started going to the church, I got a girlfriend. And I thought those two were like hand in hand. I was like, yeah, kingdom of God. Yeah, babe. <laughs> you know, I was like, this is all right. But um, pretty soon throughout the, my high school years, 
my worship of God and my worship of that girl kind of got intermingled. And when I went to college, the Lord tore that relationship away from me. He said, Jeff, this has become an idol for you. I need to destroy it. I need to tear it down. And he gave me this verse in Psalm 37, 4. He says, But delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord your God, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. That verse came back to me a little more than a year ago on Valentine's Day. I didn't have the Jesus beard when I met April. Thankfully, the Lord, through seminary and through my studies, led me to Serbia with a group of students, of which my roommate was one. Those same group of students helped start the ESL class. And the students voted it out, and they said, no, Jeff, you're not going to take this haircut with you to Serbia to do research. (laughs) And the haircut had morphed since then into something even more hideous that I, I didn't bring a slide of. But they were like, all right, no, shaving the head. So by the time my fiancé got to seminary, everyone had told her, like, you got to meet Jesus, Jeff. you got to, you know, meet this guy or whatever and, and who looks like Jesus. <laughs> and she kept looking around, and then she saw this. I, I buzzed my hair, and she met me, and she's like, oh, he's kind of interesting, but who's this Jesus, Jeff? I don't see any Jesus in him. Like, <laughs> you know, it was sort of like the Samson and Delilah story. Shaved off all my head, and all of a sudden I became vulnerable to women again. Or <laughs> was on the radar. About a year ago, after I'd been dating April for a while, she gave me a wonderful Valentine's gift. Part of the way in which she thinks about things and makes her decisions is she will put up a post-it note bulletin board, like almost like Pictionary, you know, like all the positives in green and then all of the negatives in red and all the ones that she's not sure about or whatever in yellow. And so she'll have this board with all these different colors everywhere. And that was when I asked her to to date me, that was like what she did. She went home, she's like, I got to pray about it, put all these things on a board, (laughs) and came back. I was just like, okay, I think we can date. (laughs) And so for Valentine's Day, she gave me a Valentine's. I forgot to bring it. It's a Valentine's, like a post-it note Valentine's, about this big. And she just wrote out all of the reasons God had given her, like why it'd be okay to date me, all the things that she loved about me. And on the back of one of those cards was written that verse. Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord your God, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Ten years later. So, yeah, my story is definitely not perfect by any means, but the Lord answered He's like, yeah, you, you did all right by me here in seeking first my kingdom. This is the one I want for you. Go for it. So, firstly, ask yourself, what does it look like to make my life, my home, my place of work look more like God intended and seek it? Secondly, the verse says, seek first his righteousness. What does that mean? Seek his righteousness. 
that's weird. Like, if it was just seek righteousness, I might understand, but it says his, and I'm like, his righteousness. I get his righteousness in me somehow. I don't understand, Lord Jesus, what's going on? Why do you got to be so cryptic? There's a couple of different ways in which this part of the scripture has been interpreted. The first of which it could go something like this. Make yourself a little more righteous first, and then God will give you all these things. Make yourself a little more righteous first, and then God will give you all these things. If it sounds heretical, that's because it is. <laughs> but this is exactly the kind of righteousness that Jesus would say is our righteousness, the kind of righteousness that we have for ourselves. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Albert preached on a parable in Luke 18 about the Pharisee and the tax collector. And that parable starts off, to some who were confident in their own righteousness, Jesus told this story. And if you remember, the Pharisee goes up and he says, you know, Lord, thank you that I am not like others, not like this tax collector. I tithe every week, I fast, I pray to you, you know, all of these things. But the tax collector stood at a distance, not confident in his own righteousness, saying, Lord, Forgive me, a sinner. I need your forgiveness. I'm unworthy. Jesus says the second guy, the tax collector, not the Pharisee, went away justified. What he's saying here is basically, if you have your own set of righteousness set up, your own standards of living set up, and you, you come to God and say, God, look at me. Look how great I am. I met all the ways, all my quotas for how to live. Look at how great I am. That's a good example of what it looks like to have your own righteousness. Seek first your own righteousness. The prophet Isaiah said something about that. He says, our righteousness looks like filthy rags to God. That's a gentle version, a gentle translation. In the Hebrew, what he's referring to there is a menstrual cloth. Am I allowed to say that at church? <laughs> Jesus is saying, if you've ever heard somebody like that Pharisee saying, look at how great I am. Lord, I tithe twice a week. Lord, I fast. Lord, I pray to you. It's like, and you start thinking to yourself, man, that guy sounds like a douche. God would agree. <laughs> That's exactly what God thinks. <laughs> I work at the container store. Every now and then I have to clean out the women's bathroom, you know. And every night when I close, it's like my buddies and I were just like, all right, Rochambeau. Oh, no. You put on the glove and you sort of go in and you're just like. There you go. Like, I want to stay away from that as much as I can. And it's, it's like that's how God feels about People who set up their own set of rules, their own righteousness. And you see this all over San Francisco. I hate to pick on my boss, but <laughs> my boss, um, if I had to categorize his set of righteousness, it would be political correctness. The other day in a staff meeting, he was so happy about the numbers that we were getting in that he said, hallelujah. And I was like, hallelujah. And I was like, yeah. My presence is actually having an effect. Awesome. And then he changed it. Like someone confronted him on it in San Francisco. And 
the next meeting, he was like, yeah, heckalooyah, or something. <laughs> and I was like, what? He's like, I don't want to offend anybody. I didn't know that was a religious word. Heckalooyah. That's what we're going with. <laughs> I'm like, as long as you're PC, and you, you know, in all your papers, you write he or she did or said <laughs> or whatever, and write heckalooyah, not hallelujah, then it's okay. No. Jesus said, by the measure you use to measure others, you will be measured. By your own standards that you set to judge the world, he's going to judge you. If you want his righteousness, if you want to seek God's standards for your life, recognize God's holiness is so far above anything we can possibly achieve that you end up like that tax collector and you end up kneeling down and saying, God, forgive me. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to be your disciple. Have mercy on me, Lord. I need your forgiveness. That's what it looks like to have his righteousness. Have his standards of living in your life. And thankfully, when we come to Christ and we say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, I can't do it. I can't measure up. Your holiness is so far and above anything I can achieve. He forgives us. There's another aspect too, though, that anytime you hear somebody say something or or trying to use guilt to get somebody to change, that's not God. So anytime you, you hear somebody say something like, are you still walking in sin? Or have you set your eyes on heavenly things? Or are you still seeking the things of this world? Or have you made God your, your priority? It's like, no. It's like questions like that. It's like, it's like, whoa, maybe I am. Whoa, well, maybe I'm not a child of God. Oh, hey, that hurts. You know, anytime you feel that guilt, it's like Jesus does not use guilt to try and change people. Let's take the instance in John 8. The Pharisees drag a lady out to be stoned. She was caught in adultery. And everyone's got their stones ready, and they're about to pick them up, and they're like, all right, Jesus, you're the teacher. Tell us what you want us to do. Are we going to be righteous and, and judge her and kill her, or are we, are we going to let her go? And Jesus just draws in the sand a bit, and he says, Let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And they back away, one by one. And then Jesus looks at the woman, and he's like, Boy, I really saved you, didn't I? You owe me big time. You better not sin anymore, or I'm going to have to cover your butt again. He doesn't say that. He doesn't come anywhere near saying that. No, he says, you know, daughter, is there no one who accuses you? Then neither do I. Is there no one here who condemns you? Then nor do I. Go, sin no more. And he forgives first. He, his whole ministry, he healed people first. He fed people first. He gave wine at a wedding. Anything you need, anything you needed from Jesus, he would give to you. First, so that you knew that it was his love that was changing you. It's like, yes, I love you. Yes, I can feed you. Yes, I forgive you. Yes, all of these things. Yes, I'll provide for you. Yes, I want you to change. But I want you to know that it's because I love you. It's for your good. I wanted to go digging back through the scriptures real quickly. Righteousness, according to Matthew is a touchy subject. Our passage falls at close to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, 
And so there's a few times before this where Jesus mentions righteousness. In Matthew 5, verse 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. All of these laws, all of these standards, I didn't come to get rid of them, but to fulfill them. All these righteous requirements are going to be fulfilled in me. And then he spends the rest of chapter 5 and chapter 6, he says like six times, You have heard it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You've heard it was said, this, the law. I'm telling you, this is what God intended. This is what the kingdom of God actually looks like. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. He's taking the standards of the Old Testament, God's law, and he's raising the bar. He's making it harder for even the Pharisees to achieve. Impossible, in fact. So you have no other option but to be like that tax collector. And say, Lord, I can't cut it. Forgive me. I'm not righteous. So seek first his righteousness. That means set aside your own standards. Whatever it is that you've been thinking, whether it be like, I have to be PC with everybody and treat everyone equally, or you know, whatever that standard is, set it aside. It looks like the goodie bag that we clean from the women's bathroom at night in the eyes of God. He says, adopt God's standards. See him as more holy than you can ever possibly imagine and humble yourself before him. If you've done these two things, all these things will be given to you as well. So does that mean that you never have to work again? No. He gives us an example, birds of the air who neither reap nor sow. But birds of the air also hunt for worms and they fish. They're still out there working. The children of Israel, when they came out of Egypt, all they had to do was go out and gather manna, the bread in the desert that would sustain them. But it was still work. And you know, on the sixth day, you had to gather twice as much. And if God caught you gathering on the seventh day, doing work on the seventh day, you know, then you had to be killed. You still got work to do. God's not telling you you never have to work again as long as you seek first my kingdom. But he's saying, if you put my priorities first, if you seek to make the world around you look a little more like I intended, if that's your heart, you're good. You've got it. I got the rest. Does this mean that the Lord is going to make you rich? No. In this passage, Jesus is talking about what to eat and what to wear, not how fast your car can go from zero to 60. <laughs> I've probably prayed that prayer before, like, Lord, you know the MacArthur maze. You know what it looks like on 580. Lord, just give me a Ducati so I can just zip around that mess of traffic for your kingdom, Lord, to demonstrate your power. And like, no, he's not going to give me a Ducati. I would, I would not be able to glorify God on a Ducati. But at the same time, Jesus says, even Solomon, in all of his splendor, was not clothed as beautifully as the lilies of the field. 
God can put you in some designer clothes if he wants to. The only question is, can he trust you enough to put you in those clothes or put you on a Ducati or give you those nice things? Can he trust you to still put his kingdom first? Does this passage mean that you never have to worry again about meeting your needs? Yes, that's exactly it. Jesus gives us this promise so that we never have to worry again. Do you know how freeing that is? Some of you work in Kaiser. Do you know how many illnesses come from worry, from anxiety, how many heart attacks? What he's saying is awesome, is amazing. The reason why he says this, he mentions worry again and again throughout this passage. Why do you worry about what to wear? Why do you worry about what you're going to eat? The pagans run after these things. Because what you worry about is usually your treasure. And where your treasure is, there your heart will be. If you want to have a good gauge of where your heart is, ask yourself, what do I worry about? And if your concern is that God is glorified at your place of work, or if your concern is that God's name is honored in your family, you've got it. That's it. His kingdom, his righteousness, you're seeking it. Don't worry. Stop worrying. But if you're not there, Jesus commands us to reroute our priorities, to put him first. In conclusion, ask yourself, what would it look like for my place of work or my home or my school to be a little bit more like heaven and go and seek to make it that way? Secondly, forget having your own standards of righteousness and adopt God's. I want you to see God as more holy than anything you could ever possibly achieve. Seek his standard of righteousness and fall short day by day, and come to him and say, Lord, I can't do it. I surrender. Not my will, but thine be done. And lastly, don't worry. If you got all that, if God is your priority, you have nothing to worry about. Jesus said, you are my friends. I have shared my master's business with you. This is a, a master doesn't call his servants friends because he doesn't share their business with you. But I have shared my business with you. Therefore, I call you my friends. If you want intimacy with Jesus, seek his kingdom. And when you're working for him, he's got it. He's got the tab. All right, let's pray. Father God, I praise you for the ways in which I have seen the kingdom of God in this church. May you further your kingdom in our hearts and minds and in this neighborhood. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.